today on Ag News Daily. Always been of the belief that if you're going to have good trade agreements, you have to have good allies. You've got to make friends. And you, the more friends you can have on your side, the better agreement you're going to get. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Happy Phase 1 China Deal Signing Day. I am Mike Pearson, co-host of the Ag News Daily Podcast, joined by Delaney Howell. Delaney, did you watch uh, the conversation or the the pomp and circumstance with President Trump and uh, China's Vice Premier Liu He earlier today for the signing of the trade deal? You know what? Unfortunately, I did not get the chance to watch it. I was in a breakout session actually moderating a panel by two very well-known ag policy folks in the field, Congressman Charlie Stenholm of Texas, as well as Dr. Barry Flinchbot. And we discussed part of the Chinese trade deal implications and whatnot during our breakout session this morning. And I also had the chance to Um, interview them about it this afternoon. So we will play that interview here shortly. But yes, it is great news. We've seen phase one signed and dotted and the ink is fresh, Mike. It is. And uh, President Trump spoke for almost an hour and a half. The The whole signing ceremony took about an hour and a half, I should say. President Trump started addressing the crowd, really gave about an hour-long shout-out to uh, – <laughs> seemed like everybody in the room. And uh, then the Chinese delegation spoke a little bit. Not a whole lot was actually revealed. President Trump reiterated some of the dollar figures he has talked about before. The ones I think that matter most to us, of course, are $50 billion worth of Chinese purchases of American energy, crude oil, natural gas, uh, liquefied natural gas, perhaps ethanol, and $40 billion of U.S. agricultural products. Now, no one has still seen the trade agreement, so we don't know how much of this is actually codified in writing. And taking a look at the markets today, I had my screen up the entire time the uh, presentation was going on. Markets were nonplussed. Um, At the end of the day, this was been so long in coming that uh, it, it was priced in. And in fact, we're seeing soybeans selling off rather aggressively here, despite a huge crush number. In fact, the NOPA crush, which is the amount of soybeans, uh, you know, crushed into soybean meal or oil, was within half a million tons, excuse me, half a million pounds of the uh, record uh, for a December crush. So huge domestic demand, huge international demand, but that's doing nothing to help soybean prices on the day, Delaney. No, it certainly is not, Mike. And I found actually a few more details than what we'd previously heard from the USDA, from the Trade Representative's Office, and from really the administration in general. The I believe it is part of... I'm not sure. It's USDA and also U.S. Trade Representative Office, but they released an economic and trade agreement fact sheet looking at just what they're stating as the overview here for the agreement. This is really interesting to me. I was reading through it. It's an eight-page document. I shared it on our Twitter account at Ag News Daily earlier so you all can look through it as well for yourself. But I thought this was interesting and definitely conflicts what we've heard previously Looking at Chinese purchases specifically on food, agricultural products, and seafood products, this fact sheet says that China has agreed to purchase and import on average at least $40 billion 
per year, totaling $80 billion over the next two years. They also said that on top of that, China has agreed to strive to import an additional $5 billion over the next two years on top of that $80 billion. Goes on to look at really kind of what's going on with quota, tariff rate quotas, as well as intellectual property and kind of some enforcement mechanisms there for that as well. It sounds like really from what Purdue, Lighthizer, and some of those other folks have said, China has agreed to whatever enforcement mechanisms that is, including keeping some of those tariffs that are currently in place on remaining products as well as uh, Mnuchin said that those tariffs are definitely going to stay on for the time being to until really we see kind of a, a phase two of a trade deal here. But I thought that was interesting that there were actually some details released. We don't know specifics, but $80 billion over the next two years is now what people are are sharing. Now, who was it that was sharing that? Because that was not at all what President Trump said today. Yeah, so this, like I said, was shared um, this morning through AgriPulse, but it's pulled directly off of U.S. I mean, it's got the USDA stamp on it there. It's Phase 1 Agreement Ag Summary. It's just a PDF document that you can find online. Shared it on our Twitter account, so feel free to check it out for yourself. Fantastic. So that would be incredible since we know that the record um, Chinese imports were back in 2012-2013 when they bought $29 billion worth of ag goods. And, of course, that was when ag goods were a whole lot more expensive. Mm -hmm. So for China, to, I mean, $40 billion a year, that's got to be a typo. I, I mean, President Trump talked about it over, over several years I, I'm impressed. I mean, if that's what the USDA said, then, then that's what it is. But, man, that would be a very, very tall order. I imagine we'd be setting ourselves up for disappointment if that were indeed the case. Yeah, so there's lots of conflicting information out there about it. I'll, uh, I encourage you, Mike, to check it out, too, and, and tell us what you think. I certainly shall. In the meantime, Delaney, we've got more tariff news. Ugh. So sick of talking about tariffs. But we did have, despite the uh, the trade deal signing with China, the Trump administration earlier today threatened to impose tariffs on European automobiles. Of course, we've been talking about this for about two years. But um, basically, now it, it, it appears that Britain, France, and Germany could be under increased tariffs on their automobiles if they don't formally, formally accuse Iran of breaking the 2015 nuclear deal. Um, basically, they're saying, and the European countries then came out yesterday and said, hey, this is a, uh, a bad deal, and they're not happy with what's happened in Iran, but they haven't really come out and formally accused Iran of breaking its, its uh, nuclear deal. So that is percolating right along there, and we'll have to see um, how this thing plays out. Well, At least it's removed from agriculture, which is a nice right. thing. Absolutely. And another thing percolating this week in agriculture, especially in Washington, D.C., continues to be the USMCA agreement. We are seeing four more Senate committees take up that implementing bill, voting on it today, and we're still seeing a final vote set for the full Senate before the end of this week ahead of the impeachment trial. We still haven't seen the House release those impeachment documents, so we're kind of in the clear for now with getting USMCA moved right along. All right. Well, 
you know, as of as we're talking right now here, we are com- recording at uh, 115, 130, and the House, like you say, Delaney, they are voting. They're shipping that over to the Senate, and uh, I guess push will come to shove. We'll see what happens. We certainly will. So, Delaney, you had a chance to talk to some of the great minds mm-hmm. in the world of ag trade, ag policy. Outside of the trade agreement, what were some of the other big things we're watching? Now that this is in the rearview mirror, did, uh, did either of those two guys, Dr. Flinchbaugh, or, uh, or uh, you know, do they have any thoughts on uh, what we should be watching next? You know, we really didn't get to kind of what's next other than just watching to see how China will go about kind of this post-phase one trade deal. Will we actually see them buying the commodities? Will we see any sort of enforcement mechanism put in place? And also, that aside, they really spent a lot of time focusing or talking about how can we fix what they're calling a broken political system. I mean, you take USMCA, for, for instance, and just the amount of variance we have now between political parties and Really, they talked about folks not reaching across the aisle to work together and also just said, you know, this is still a a nation run by the people. We elect the people we put in office. And so we need to do a better job of selecting leaders that we think will reach across the aisle and work with those people, even if they don't have the same mindset agreement on things, but are candid and, and work together to actually get things, get pieces of legislation enacted. Mm, it sounds like a really tall order. It is. I agree. I agree. But uh, I think we do a really good job of re-electing people, not necessarily yes. a good job of electing new people. But right. that's just me on a soapbox. Yeah. No. I've got some positive news, Delaney Howell. How do you want to hear about that? <laughs> well, what are my options? Well, you're going to hear about it because I've got the microphone. Here is the good news. <laughs> Japanese tariffs, of course, we signed the trade agreement with Japan or, or ratified the trade agreement with Japan just after the first of this year. Tariffs on cheese and dairy products have dropped already. And the senior vice president of trade policy for the U.S. Dairy Export Council says trade is already increasing. Excuse me. The increase in sales is great. The fact that the U.S. is now on a level playing field with Australia, New Zealand, and the EU is a huge relief. And uh, uh, Jamie Castaneda, who is that uh, senior vice president, said, quote, yes, we're expanding. But the critical element for dairy is that we're not going to lose our market share in Japan. Just to kind of point out how small changes can impact imports, Japan's tariffs, yeah, Japan's tariffs on hard cheeses from the U.S. Yeah, this is your cheddar, your Gouda, your Monterey Jack. Those tariffs dropped about three percent from twenty-six point twenty-nine point eight percent to twenty-six percent right on par with countries in the EU and the TPP. And on April 1st, the Japanese tariff for all countries, including the U.S., is going to drop another 2% down to 24.2. So we are on a level playing field. We're getting some of that cheese from this country shipped overseas. We're adding that value here. We're selling it at a higher price in Japan, which is is great news for a dairy industry that has struggled Mm -hmm. for the past five years. Absolutely. Mike, and I'm going to continue talking trade scene here because those are just dominating the headlines today. Looking at the U.S., Japan, and the European Union, they met on Tuesday, just yesterday, and jointly signed off on a series of proposals to basically make some moves in the WTO and reform some of the current rules we see on subsidies. They didn't come out and jointly 
point the finger at China, but it seems like a lot of these reforms that they are hoping to enact will roll back uh, some of what China has been doing or maybe hasn't been doing as a member of the WTO. So we will continue to watch that piece of news as well. It was mentioned, I think, just a little bit there in that fact sheet, again, uh, is is uh, on our Twitter account at Ag News Daily, that uh, not only does China need to buy products, do this and that, you know, but also they need to be fair players within the World Trade Organization. So really going through that fact sheet, I was looking at it and thinking, I'm not sure why China would ever agree to any of this. I'm not really sure what they're getting in the long run, but uh, who, who am I to say that? Yeah, yeah, and Delaney, actually, I tell you what, so I have pulled up our Twitter feed. Folks, check us out at Ag News Daily on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Aha, and it is the first link. I just yes. found it, so I was going to read through that. Yeah, and I, and I emailed I, it to you, too, just so you have it. Oh, well, you are conscientious. I haven't seen it. Mm-hmm. Oh, there it is. There it is. 128. Oh, you literally just I literally it. just I feel better. It. Okay. Fantastic. Well, I tell you what, Delaney, I am all out of news aside from the downturn yes. in soybean prices today. Do you have any other stories we need to discuss or should we dig into these markets? Yeah, let's dig into them, Mike. All right. And dig we shall, because we have weakness in both corn and beans. Wheat, again, moving to the upside and really pushing up against some key technical levels of resistance. So it'll be interesting to see where the wheat market goes in the future. It'll also be interesting to see what happens with soybeans as we violated some key levels of support today, levels that have held for about the past two months. We shot through them to the downside. So as we take a look at the corn market right off the bat, March corn down two cents at 387 even the may contract down two and a half to close at 393 and a half in soybeans traded relatively stable on the day until the trade deal signing was getting underway then we saw it deteriorate as the market closed the march soybean contract down 13 and a half cents finished at 928 and three quarters we had been watching that 937 level as support now we are significantly below it may 2020 beans down 13 and three quarters to close at 941 and three quarters over in the wheat pit, the March contract up five and a quarter at five seventy three and three quarters. The May up four and a quarter to finish the day at five seventy four and a half. Looking over at the world of livestock, we've got a slightly weaker trade in the cattle complex today. February live cattle down twenty five cents at one twenty six sixty. The April down thirty seven fifty to finish at one twenty seven fifty. In feeder cattle, the March contract dropped fifty five cents at one forty five seventeen fifty. April down forty five to finish at one forty eight twenty. Mixed trade today in the lean hog markets. February was up 20 cents at 67.8750. April down two and a half to close at 74.97 and a half. Looking over at dairy for the first time in a while, we've got an up move in the class three milk markets today. The January contract was up six cents at $17 even. February up 23 cents on the day to finish at 17.08. Delaney, I will let you introduce our interview today since you recorded it down in Kansas City. Well, I am certainly excited. I think these are two great voices representing agriculture at various levels. Kicking it off here with Dr. Barry Finchbaugh of K-State, as well as former Congressman Charlie Stenholm. Well, I am honored to be joined by two very well-known guests today. I've got with me Congressman Charlie Stenholm and Dr. Barry Flinchbaugh, who works with K-State and Congressman 
served in 13 different terms. You both have quite the list of accolades along with that as well. Congressman, I'll start with you. Uh, Charlie, tell me a little bit, tell our listeners a little bit more about your background and how you got to where you are today. Well, I grew up on a farm and was very active in FFA and vocational agriculture and knew what I wanted to do the rest of my life, and that was farm. And so when I graduated from high school in 1957, I entered Tarleton Junior College, Tarleton State Junior College, two-year course uh, that uh, was a vocational agriculture course. Two years, learn a little bit more about what you need to know about welding and all of the things that go with farming. And uh, then I was going to go home and farm. At the end of the first semester, Dr. Joe Autry, who was the head of the department, called me into his office and he said, basically, we're wasting your folks' money and our time. If you want to farm, there's the door. But you may want to get an education, so you may want to do something else the rest of your life, which I took his advice, or I wouldn't be here talking to you at this very moment. And I took his advice. And then I began teaching vocational agriculture, which I changed my degree to voc- to uh, agricultural education, got my master's, and then I knew exactly what I wanted to do again the rest of my life. I wanted to teach and farm. Got a job teaching voag four miles from my farm, and I'm as happy as a tick on a dog. Life cannot get any better. I taught for three and a half years, and a group of farmers came out to the ag building one morning and wanted me to become the executive vice president of Rolling Plains Cotton Growers, fancy term for lobbyist for Rolling Plains Cotton. And so I did that for three years. Then I became a manager of the general, or general manager of Stanford Electric Cooperative. And each time I managed to assume some leadership roles, and people began to say, someday you may want to run for Congress. Well, Omar Burleson finally retired, and when he did, we ran and we won, and then we got elected and reelected 13 times. And the rest is history. The rest is history. <laughs> and uh, Barry, tell me about your background. You've been teaching with K-State, teaching ag policy for nearly 50 years. That's, that's a big accomplishment. Well, I grew up in uh, southeastern Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania Dutch country. Uh, it was always understood that I was going to Penn State. Uh, first, uh, a member of the family to do that. Uh, I served as county agent in northeast Pennsylvania for three and a half years. And then I went back to Penn State and got a master's degree and then on to Purdue and got a Ph.D. And uh, there were several openings when I graduated from Purdue on ag policy, but... Uh, I interviewed at K-State, and um, uh, if you're going to do ag policy work, it's a great place to do it. Um, farm State, etc. I told my folks I would stay three years because they were upset that I left Pennsylvania and went the whole way to Indiana, or and then on to Kansas. And, so I said, I'll be back in three years. Well, now I've got a cemetery lot up on the hill, and I think I'm going to stay. It's a great place. It grows on you. And I've had a great run. I've had about 4,300 students, and uh, some who are uh, sure making a, um, a difference. And hopefully I helped them learn how to do that and so forth.
Yeah, you're getting to shape the minds of a lot of young people. And, and you two also have a relationship outside of doing a lot of speaking events together. You're kind of the Washington insiders, as people have referred to. You have a long-lasting relationship together of, of 40-some years. How did you two come together, and, and how did you work together? How have you worked together for so long with Ag Policy? Well, we met at, um, at my alma mater, Penn State, uh, in the early 80s at a co-op conference, National Cooperative Conference. And um, uh, I mean, at least from my point of view, we took to each other almost immediately because he's got a great sense of humor and he speaks his mind and he uh, doesn't give you a bunch of uh, political jargon. And... and I just found him very refreshing, and here's a Texan, you know, and I've always heard all these stories about these arrogant Texans, <laughs> and uh, he's actually pretty humble, and uh, he's, I watched him in Congress all those years, and uh, if we had 435 like Charles Stenholm, it would be a lot better country. You notice when I said that, they clapped just this morning, so uh, it's been a great ride. I. He calls me his mentor, well, and I do the same thing with him. We've mentored each other, so to speak. Absolutely. You have a very long-standing working relationship together. It's very impressive to see you two work together for so many years. Now, I want to just ask about one of the issues we talked about during the main session this morning, and that was trade. We spent a lot of time talking about trade this morning, talking about the current situations we're sitting in right now with trade. It's easy to look at the situation and say, here's how we should have done it, here's how we could fix it, but how do you two go about advising or, t or sharing with your students that you're both teaching about today's current trade situation? Basically, I have always been of the belief that if you're going to have good trade agreements, you have to have good allies. You've got to make friends. If you, the more friends you can have on your side, the better agreement you're going to get. If you decide you're going to only negotiate bilaterally and America is going to be the one negotiating with each country, we're going to lose in the long run. We're going to lose in the short run. Trade is international. It's among 150-something countries. And the very idea that any one country, whether it be China or the United States, can unilaterally make the best decisions for their constituencies I've yet to see anybody even come close to proving that theory. So building allies, agreeing on what you're going to negotiate, agreeing on what the rules should be, adopting those rules, and then have them enforced and carried out by a multi-group. If you don't like WTO, come up with something else. But World Trade Organization, in which you have rules that are followed and those that don't follow are kicked out, is the only way to go. And Barry, I think you also shared some interesting points when you were talking about TPP and, and you know, 170 plus countries, and it's kind of impossible to do a bilateral trade deal with each one of those countries. Yes, the, the bilateral thing uh, really just doesn't make any sense. Uh, uh, number one, it's extremely inefficient. Uh, number two, you can't make these agreements in isolation. Even China and the United States can't operate in isolation. Uh, 
international means international. Uh, so we had 12 of the, of the big countries, so to speak, in terms of trade uh, in the TPP, Trans-Pacific Partnership. The only one that wasn't in was China, and they wouldn't go in. And so when we had that all organized and ready to go, um, it was the group versus China. And China lobbied hard to get for us to not go in it. And uh, uh, the Trump administration will say it wouldn't have passed Congress anyhow. Well, I don't know how they know that. We never even got that close because they pulled the plug. Um, and now there's 11 countries, and minus United States. Well, the big dog's gone. And uh, so... And we were all starting to do a similar thing with Europe. And I would argue because we pulled out of that, we got this Brexit nonsense, which is going to decrease the ability of the European nations to participate in trade and so forth. Um, and I don't know which country's got it more backwards, the United Kingdom or the United States. But you can't go it alone, period. And that's not rocket science. On that point, I, I explained to my students my theory of why this is as Barry was saying it, and that is I don't care if you're building widgets. The market for widgets is $323 million in the United States. It's $7.8 billion, billion with a B in the world. So where is your future in building widgets? Is it in the United States or is it in the world? You come to your own conclusion. Well, I do not want to keep you gentlemen any longer. You two are both a very big wealth of knowledge when it comes to ag policy and other top policy related pieces of information and news. Thank you both for taking the time to chat with me. Enjoyed it. Thank you. Well, again, I, I think that is such an awesome interview. Honestly, it was just, it was great. I kind of got get to check that off my bucket list now, interviewing those two gentlemen. They are super smart, super knowledgeable about ag policy and kind of the happenings in Washington, D.C. If we have any young podcasters that are tuning in, I mean, you know, Dr. Barry Flinchbaugh is a well-known man at K-State University, and uh, Charlie Stenholm there is... At his alma mater now at Tarleton University in Texas. So if we got any young people that are listening to the podcast, I would reach out to them as mentors if you've got questions about ag policy, even if you are not a young person. I mean, they are just a wealth, a wealth of information. They are. I have uh, had dinner several times with Dr. Barry Flinchbot. Every time I have learned something, he has a story for every occasion. <laughs> and Delaney's story is what we like to tell here on the podcast. Listeners, if you want to get caught up on past episodes, check out our website at agnewsdaily.com. Visit us, as I mentioned, on social media at agnewsdaily on Facebook, Instagram, and the Twitter. And, uh, of course, uh, we want to hear from you. And uh, keep in touch with that, Delaney. Should we let the people go? Let's let them go. (laughs) 